Uh, we've been going through uh, Luke's Gospel at Singleton Evangelical Church, which is where I'm the pastor. And so uh, we're looking at that part of God's Word now, Luke 19, 11, 44. I'm assuming that's what you wrote out, oh, sorry, read out earlier. I couldn't, I couldn't hear anything. So turn to Luke chapter 19. Grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 19. And we'll pick it up in verse 11, so Luke 19, 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. Now, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money and in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good sir, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and ripping what I did not sell. Why then did you put my money on deposit so that when I come back, I can collect it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a cold tie which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. But if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had told them. As they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in, in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even you had known only from this day 
uh, what will bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone or another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, let's talk to God and ask him to help us to understand this passage, eh? Let's bow heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as your word is open, your spirit is at work. We ask that you'll please encourage us, correct us, and change us. Help us to obey, to obey Jesus right as our King. Please show us the areas in the life that we need to change so that we'll be faithful to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most children growing up in Australia have no idea who Jesus is. I teach scripture, and for many people growing up in Australia, they only know Jesus as a swear word. That's all they know about Jesus. Now, I'm assuming for all of you there today, or at least most of you there today, and many of you just walked in, uh, you guys know quite a bit more about Jesus. Jesus is not just a swear word. There's something more about this Jesus than just profanity. So how will we, how will you respond to the Jesus? And in particular, the question today is, how will we respond to Jesus as our king? Because that is exactly what Jesus is, our king. Jesus is a king. Jesus is portrayed in our passage, the moment as he enters Jerusalem, as king. You see, Jesus truly is God's appointed king. And he is God's appointed king of God's kingdom. Now, this is why Jesus is called the Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's his job description. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the king. Now, the word Christ is the Greek word for the word Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean exactly the same thing. It's looking forward to God's appointed king. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus entered human history, Jesus was born as king. The Magi came and offered gifts to Jesus. Gifts fit for a king. When Jesus began his ministry, he talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, it's amongst you. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus told us the nature of that kingdom of God through his miracles. The nature of the kingdom of God is, is, a, is a kingdom of peace, not of suffering, not of sickness, not of death. Not a kingdom where, where Satan reigns, but a kingdom where Satan is pushed out and, and uh, thrown outside. And when Jesus went to, to Jerusalem, he died on the cross as a king. You see, he was mocked by those who wanted him dead. He was mocked as a king. You know, put the sign above, above, above him on the cross. You know, hail that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. Uh, he was given a purple robe, colour for kings, a crown of thorns. It was worshipped, bowed down, mocked as the king. Yet through the cross, Jesus was crowned king by God. And his resurrection shows it. 
Jesus was raised from the dead as king. And when Jesus ascended to God's right hand, which is where he is now, he is reigning as king. And he has poured out his Holy Spirit onto his people, into this world. And Jesus is still reigning as king through the Spirit's work amongst us. And lastly, what did Jesus say he was going to do when he uh, returned to the Father? He said he was going to come back again, didn't he? And when he comes back again, he's coming back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Everyone will see Jesus as he truly, truly is, the King. And we're told in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow to Jesus when he returns. Whether they like it or not, everyone will bow to Jesus because he is King. So today in our passage, we explore the first question, what is our response to Jesus as our King? Now there are three uh, points in our passage today, uh, and three points to our talk. In, in our talk. If you're taking notes, the first point is faithful or unfaithful, and that's the parable of the ten minds. Our second point is hollow praise and criticism. And that's as Jesus approaches Jerusalem on the document. The last point, point three, is the cost of rejection as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. So there are three points that we're looking, uh, going to go through right now. Let's look at the first point. And before I start the first point, we're spending the bulk of our time on point one. So if it's uh, an hour or so past and we're still on point one, don't worry, two, two seconds we've done point two. <laughs> It won't be that long. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Okay, uh, point one the parable of the ten minors. It's a parable about our response to Jesus as king. And now Jesus tells this parable because of chapter 19, verse 11. What does Jesus say in verse 11? He said, Well, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. You see, there's a general feeling amongst the Jews in Jesus' day that when God's kingdom would come, God's kingdom would be established right there and then. The Roman Empire would be overthrown. God would be reigning in Jerusalem, and the world would be God's kingdom. And the Old Testament pointed forward to God's kingdom being established by God's Messiah. The Old Testament uh, gave no detailed time frame, or the Old Testament did not spell out the details of how God's Messiah would bring in God's kingdom. And from the Old Testament vantage point, it looked like when God's Messiah came to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God would be established there and then. Now, when we get to the New Testament, and Jesus comes, the time frame and details become clearer. Jesus is saying, He's telling his parable because he's basically saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'll be crowned king, but I'm going to go away for a while. And when I return, I'll return sometime in the future. And between my first coming and second coming, you need to be careful how you live. You need to be living faithfully and not unfaithfully. Let's pick up in verse 12 of the parable. And as I read this, Think about in your, in your, in your, in the, in your head, uh, who is being faithful to the king and who is being unfaithful? And why is 
Why are they being faithful and why are they being unfaithful? So we'll pick it up in verse 12 in chapter 19. He says, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And he sent for the servants to, to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained. But the first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more, his master answered. You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in that piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking what I did not sell and putting in what I did not bring. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The whole focus in this parable is on the servants and how the servants use the money they were given. The servants are given explicit instructions in verse 13. Put this money to work. In other words, invest this money. Do business with money. Make this money grow. Increase the value of the money I've given to you. Now, although 10 servants get the money, we don't need to know what they all did. We only need three servants. Uh, we only need to know what three servants did in order to get the idea of what Jesus is saying. You see, two servants did what their king wanted them to do. They faithfully obeyed their king, and they put their money to work and increase its value. And the king responds to their faithfulness to give them responsibility in his kingdom. The third servant did not want to do what the king told him. The third servant was unfaithful to his king. The third serpent gave an excuse for his unfaithfulness. The last servant says there in verse, uh, verse 21. What does it say? Verse 21. I was afraid of you because you were a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. This is actually an excuse. The third servant was unfaithful to his king in two unrelated lies. Uh, the first lie is that this third servant was unfaithful, unfaithful due to his laziness to obey him. You see, if the third servant really believed that the king was a hard man, or really feared this king, then this servant would have made sure that the money was at least invested in the bank so that the king would pick up the interest. But 
this servant simply hides the money and forgets about it. So obviously, this third servant does not fear the king that much. Instead, the third servant's unfaithfulness to the king is seen as a laziness to obey. You see, from the context of this parable, this third servant was most likely hoping that this king would not get the job. So why should I bother my time to invest the money he's given to me? I don't want him to be king. And we send a delegation down there to make sure he doesn't become king. So why should I bother obeying him? I won't obey. But this servant is caught out when the king, he does not want to be king, becomes king. And this is what the king says in verse 22. I will judge you by what you say. Now secondly here, the third servant's laziness is based on a misrepresentation of the king. Now we know from the parable that many hated this this king, and so they sent a delegation to stop this king from being crowned. But did you notice the generosity of this king to those who were faithful to him? Incredible generosity. And what more, kings by definition do not plant and do not sow. Kings by definition rule. And the king's subjects supplied the food to the king. This third servant is misrepresenting the king to enable him to be lazy and so disobey the king. The result of this unfaithfulness to the king was losing what he already had. And for those who were against the king, in verse 27, unfaithfulness leads to death. A reference to uh, hell, punishment after death. Those who are faithful to the king, well, they will receive what their unfaithful had. And in the context around this parable, Jesus is disappointed king. He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. That's him going to be crowned. And he's going to return on Sunday. That's his second coming. Uh, the, the servants, uh, so the, the, the people who are uh, uh, there to uh, stop him becoming king are the, are the Jewish people. And the servants of the king represent a faithful follower of Jesus and an unfaithful follower of Jesus. The money simply reflects how we use what God has given to us. So, while we wait for Jesus to return, to establish his kingdom because where we are sitting, he's risen from the dead, he's king. So as we wait for Jesus to establish his kingdom, are we like the faithful servant or are we like the unfaithful servant? That's why Jesus tells us this parable. So, are we too lazy to obey Jesus as our king? Are you too lazy to obey Jesus as your king? Often our, unla- our laziness to obey Jesus is related to a misunderstanding or a, a warped view of Jesus' kingship. I'll give you some examples of, of how this can, can, can uh, work out. Uh, the first example is this. Some of us may think, well, I won't even try to obey Jesus because Jesus expects too much of us. Now, there's no way in the world I can meet his expectations, so I won't even try. That's laziness. Or one, uh, 
at, at times we may think, well, Jesus and men seem over the top. Now, it's okay if I disobey Jesus at times, especially if I really enjoy doing things that Jesus prefers. In fact, if I'm not sure Jesus is right all the time, so I'll do what I want at times. That's amazingness, unfaithfulness. Or, or we could say, it doesn't suit me at the moment to take Jesus seriously. And Jesus will understand. I mean, he delights that I can be forgiven. Jesus loves me. So Jesus doesn't really want me to give him my very life. Or, obey Jesus, well, Jesus is a killjoy. If I obey Jesus, then that, that takes all the joy out of life. And I want to have fun in life. So I'm going to obey Jesus only when it suits me, so I can have fun with the rest of my life. Lastly, it's not fair that other people have it so much easier than me. If, 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 if God, if you just stop all the suffering in my life, if you made my life easier, God, then I would, I would faithfully obey you. But because my life is hard, God, ah, this can't obey you. They're all, it's all unfaithfulness. Feminine from laziness, from a misrepresentation of who Jesus is. And you can see, can't you, how our laziness, in our laziness, we can often portray a wrong picture of Jesus. You see, we forget Jesus' mercy. We forget Jesus' love. We forget Jesus' compassion. We forget Jesus' generosity. We forget everything good about Jesus and just focus on what we think is who Jesus is. See, are you lazy when it comes to obeying Jesus? Am I lazy when it comes to obeying Jesus? And it's an important question to ask because what happens to those who are lazy? And I disobey the king. Or even what they have is taken from them. And death. Eternal death. So instead of being lazy when it comes to obeying Jesus, we are to faithfully obey Jesus as our king. And the question the faithful person asks is this. How can I be using what God has given me and my life to obey Jesus. The faithful person is centered, uh, has, has their life centered around Jesus and not themselves. And this is a very important point. Sin is a very easy word to spell, isn't it? Most people can spell the word sin. S-I-N. That is how you spell sin. Sin can stand for self is number one. Do you get that? S, self, I, is, and number one. That describes what sin is. Self is when we make life all about me and everything revolves around me. The unfaithful servant, in his laziness, he was the centre of his life. God and Jesus revolved around him. But for the faithful servant, they want Jesus to be the centre of their life and everything to revolve around the Lord Jesus. So how can we be using everything that we have, everything that God has given to us, our time, our wealth, our gifts, including our very life and our 
Apple be using that to be keeping Jesus number one in our life and having everything else revolve around him? How can we be using our light to faithfully obey Jesus as our king? Using our life faithfully, serving Jesus means taking Jesus seriously in every part of our life. Not just on Sunday afternoon, not just at Bible study, not just at youth group, but at work, at school, at home, in the privacy of your own bedroom. That's what it means to take Jesus seriously all the time. Uh, being a faithful to Jesus means saying no to sin. It means saying no to living for self. Life does not revolve around me or around you. It revolves around the Lord Jesus. Being faithfully obeying Jesus means saying yes to living for Jesus, even when it's hard. Faithfully obeying Jesus means pulling out the weeds of disobedience and laziness and cultivating a faithfulness to Jesus even when it hurts. Faithfully obeying Jesus means carving out time so we can we can meet with our church family regularly even when it's inconvenient. We don't just come to church when we feel like it. We don't just come to Bible study when we feel like it. That's not being faithfully obedient to Jesus as our it means uh, being faithful to Jesus as our king means using our time with others to encourage them to keep obeying Jesus. Even if it means going out of our way to meet up with them. It means praying with and for one another. Even when we don't want to pray. It means taking an interest in those around us so that they grow and mature as Christians, being obedient to Jesus as king. Friends, this is the culture that the Lord Jesus wants in his gatherings. This is the culture that he wants at Gospel Church, friends. A culture where everyone is working to encourage one another to be faithfully obeying Jesus as their king. And one last thing, being faithful to Jesus as our king also means spreading the news that Jesus will return someday. Because he will, won't he? King Jesus will return as king. And we need to remind people before it's too late. So we can pray for our family members, for our colleagues, for our classmates. Pray that they'll understand Jesus. Pray for opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. Pray for opportunities to invite them to church or invite them to youth group or whatever other, other uh, events that you run. The first parable, we're to be faithful to Jesus as our King and not only faithful. The second point, hollow praise and criticism. Now, as Jesus heads up to Jerusalem, these next two points are going to be quite uh, much quicker. As Jesus heads to Jerusalem, we get hollow praise and criticism. Now, keep an eye out for this hollow praise and criticism as I read in verse 28. So after Jesus had said this, he went up ahead to going to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his, of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village of Hedgeview, and you, uh, and as you enter it, you will find a colt. Colt is a, a, a young male donkey. A colt there, uh, you know, that no one has ever, has ever ridden. Untie the colt and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say the Lord needs it. The disciples went there and they found it exactly 
they have Jesus said, and the owner came out and said, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, well, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it, and as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down into the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. The blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, then the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the place, I'll put some things in the So here we said it here. First of all, clearly Jesus is in control, isn't he? He knows exactly what's going to happen uh, about this young donkey, but this, 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 the cult. And uh, this, Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem on a donkey is a reminder of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, write, write that down and, and go read Zechariah 9 and then go home. It's a great picture where God's kingdom is going to be established by his king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And this king is going to establish both peace and judge those who or punish those who are unfaithful to this king. The crowd here is in no doubt that Jesus is king. Uh, they quote in Psalm 108, 118 verse 26 here, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But they have no doubt in their heads, Jesus is king. And possibly even the cult's owner knew that Jesus was king, so allowed Jesus to take uh, his, his uh, cult to Jesus. Now, although they are rightly praising Jesus as king now, as we keep reading through Luke's gospel, the crowd's praise of Jesus turns to shouts of crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify And as we look back in chapter 19, the, the crowd's praising Jesus. Why? Because of all the miracles they've seen. And as soon as Jesus is arrested, there are no more miracles. As soon as Jesus is before Herod, there's no more miracles. The crowd's praise turns to killing. The crowd's praise is hollowed. It is always easy to praise Jesus when you are surrounded by people praising Jesus, isn't it? But will we still praise Jesus when everyone else around us is praising things like same-sex marriage, gender fluidity, or all truths lead to the same God, or there is no God, or we are all born being good? You see, it's easy for us to praise Jesus when everyone else is praising Jesus. But when our society stops praising Jesus, and we're the minority, Will we still praise Jesus when it's hard? And sadly, the church is full of people who praise Jesus on issues that our society likes. And when, our, and when Jesus critiques our society, then these people shy away from, from praising those things. They switch sides straight away and jump between the sides of our community rather than the sides of Jesus. Is that you? Are you a follower of Jesus because it's convenient and comfortable for you? Or because you're around a family or friends who are Christian? 
And as soon as you move out of that environment, who will you praise there? Will you still praise Jesus? Because in our world today, our faith is under the microscope. We're going to be challenged. How dare you follow Jesus? You're immoral. How dare you follow Jesus? Your views are outdated and old-fashioned. Who will you praise then when you're under the microscope? So the crowd's praise here is hollow. And lastly, we see this criticism here, isn't there? That the Pharisees criticise Jesus and the Pharisees and the church leaders. And they're, they're there with Jesus saying, but Jesus, you've got to stop your disciples singing out like this. I mean, it's clear you're not the king. You're just a human on a donkey. You're not the king. Please stop them. And what does Jesus say? Did you notice it's the contrast between the rocks and the Pharisees? Jesus is saying, he says, you know, the rocks are going to fall. If you don't cry out, or if the crowd doesn't cry out, the very rocks will cry out. The contrast is this. Rocks, if you haven't noticed, they don't have ears or a mouth or a brain. Pharisees, they're humans, they have brains, mouth, ears. And the irony is that the thing that, that has no brain, as Jesus walks past, I understand this is my maker and my kid. So the very creation works out. Sadly, the Pharisees who can see when their maker walks past, they can't see. Because of Jesus. Do you see Jesus as he truly is? Do you? Is the Jesus you think you are both the real Jesus in the Bible? The real Jesus in history. I am astounded when I talk to people who say they're Christians and the Jesus they follow is not the Jesus of the Bible, it's not the Jesus of history, but it's the Jesus that they cooked up in their own head. We can come to the church to make sure we follow and stir the real Jesus. Jesus will return someday as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Are you ready to greet your King? Well, lastly, Jesus highlights the costs of rejecting him as he heads to Jerusalem, as he weeps over it. Have a look at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what that uh, what would bring you peace, that now it has been hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an abandonment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Uh, by the way, Jesus is looking forward to about 70 AD when the uh, Jews revolted against Roman rule and the Roman Empire uh, circled Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That's what Jesus is referring to there. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because they do not recognise the time of the God's coming. Uh, two things are note here. The first thing is this. Those in Jerusalem fail to recognise God's appointed king. There is a mystery here. Although Jesus' kingship is hidden from their eyes in verse 42, they have still failed to acknowledge Jesus as their king. And if you were there in Jesus' day and did a survey of the Jews in Jerusalem, those who didn't believe in Jesus, and if you asked them, guys, uh, uh, do you think Jesus is, is king? And they'd say no. And if you ask them, do you think uh, your eyes have been closed to the truth of who Jesus is? They would have said no. 
Jesus is simply not king. I don't believe Jesus is king. The second thing to note here is the cost of rejection is huge. It's the crime of rejection is huge. Jesus is our major. Our re- rejection of Jesus is not just an innocent thing. Our rejection of Jesus is a crime. And not only is our rejection of Jesus a crime, it's also a personal stab in the back to God. To understand how bad our crime is, look at what Jesus endured on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was punished instead of us. He took my flag and your pure punishment, my punishment, your punishment. That gives you an idea of how bad our sin is. He died to literally save us from hell because hell is really that bad. Don't be lazy with sin. Don't be lazy with sin. We need to encourage one another to keep saying no to sin. To keep the ability in a culture where we want to be obedient to Jesus as our king. We all have friends and family, don't we, who are rejecting at the moment Jesus as their king. And it should spare us that the cost of rejection is so horrific. It should drive us to pray for them. It should drive us to warn them before Jesus returns. It should motivate us to take part in spreading the news of Jesus' return as king. And people sitting there dying, you are still rejecting Jesus. And we urge you, gently, trust Jesus' love and compassion and mercy. He died for you so that you can be forgiven. He died for you so that you can have the best life ever after you die. Please trust in me. Let me summarize this quickly. The only response to Jesus is to serve our King faithfully with all that He has given us, and that includes our prayer. Making our life about Jesus and not about Him. We resist the temptation to be unfaithful. We resist the temptation to be lazy. We resist that temptation. But because the cost of rejection is huge. Before we, we stop, folks, we need to say this one last thing, don't we? This parable is talking about a whole life of, of being unfaithful to Jesus. No Christian's ever perfect. We are all unfaithful at times. I am unfaithful at times. And when we are unfaithful, what will we do? That's the truth. Will we come up with an excuse as to why we're unfaithful? I was in the right, that's why, you know, I don't know, did X, Y, Z. They hurt me, and so I hurt them back. When we are unfaithful, we need to own it. We need to confess it to our God and ask for forgiveness. Because He will forgive us, regardless of what you've done, thought, and said. He wants to forgive us and he will forgive us. That is a promise. And what a great promise that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we see so clearly here Jesus as your appointed king. We ask that we will be accepting Jesus as our king too. Father, please forgive us when we live life for ourselves. 
when we fit you around what we want, when we just follow our own desires and our own dreams. Forgive us for that. And Father, we ask that we would live our life for you. Even when it's hard, even when no one else has helped us to trust you and to obey you. Please show us the areas in the life that we need to change. Please help us to remove disobedience to you in our life, to remove sin. We ask that we continue to trust in your goodness and your love and mercy. And we thank you that you've helped us so much and, 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 and continues to help us through your spirit given to us. Father, we pray for those amongst us who we know who do not yet understand who Jesus is. Please open their eyes so they can see Jesus as we can see. We ask that they'll understand the greatness of Jesus and the greatness of being forgiven. And Father, as we live our life, help us to continue to own our failings and help us to continue to go to you to ask for forgiveness. And thank you that you have forgiveness and you will continue to forgive us. We thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you empower us and help us to serve you by your spirit. Help us to continue to do it. And we ask that as we do this, we encourage others to do it as well. And that we create a great culture that brings the church that will be uh, everyone to be growing in Christ. A culture where people take you seriously. A culture where we are living with Jesus as our we pray this in Jesus' glorious Amen. Um.